Well, hey, good morning, everybody. If uh, it's your first time here, we are glad that you're with us. If you're watching us online, thank you so much for joining us. We have had a busy week, and some of our guys got back this morning. It may have smelled a little bit like campfire. Um, we had our man camp. That was a lot of fun. We only had a couple injuries, and I wasn't one of them. So you know what? I'm pretty proud of myself because my money was on me. But it's a good time. I look forward to doing that again, but I'm really excited to be here this morning. We're going to continue walking through the book of Nehemiah. We've been going through this Old Testament book, and I've loved watching how God raised up Nehemiah. Nehemiah understood that prayer had to be its foundation, and we saw the wall complete. And then there's kind of a transition in Nehemiah, and it's actually going to speed up a good bit over the next couple weeks. We're going to cover those chapters. We've only got about seven more messages in this book. Um, But today, I I really like that it's kind of quick and simple and simplistic because we're going to understand some aspects of ceremony. Uh, I, if you're around me for any amount of time, I'm kind of an old soul in that I love history and I love kind of looking back and seeing how there's been these ceremonies throughout history that kind of mark these milestones as either reminders or entering into a new phase of life. And a couple years ago, I was at a conference, and we had a breakout session, and the guy teaching it, he was talking about, you know, biblical manhood and celebrating that milestone of going from a young man to, you're a man now. He said the way that he did that in his own life is he had a son who had turned 18. He took his son out to this ranch, and there were some trees there, and he said, I'd set up an axe. And I told him, son, this tree represents the things that are going to happen in your life that are bigger than you that you have no control over. It's also the things that you can't take care of in one fell swoop. You're gonna have to work at it. So take the ax and cut the tree down. And I loved that. Years later, I took a group of guys who had graduated from a pretty intense uh, kind of guys discipleship group and we took them out, there were four of them, there were four trees, four axes, two of them were sharp, two of them not so much. We just kind of let them draw lots on it. For an hour, those kids hacked away at a tree. They got done, they were sweaty, hands were bleeding, and they were proud of their accomplishment. And I look forward to one day taking two, hopefully a little bit bigger blonde kids out and going, you know what, you're a man now. We're going to celebrate that. See, everybody's been a part of some sort of ceremony. If you graduated, there's a graduation ceremony. If you've gone to a wedding, that's a ceremony. And today, the Israelites are going to discover a ceremony and a feast, something that's going to be special to them. And they're going to celebrate it, understanding that it means something. There's a reminder behind it. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to start in verse 13. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. It says in verse 13, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make books as it is written. So as these people come together, it says they came together, all these heads of these households, And they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. See, this was not some simple get-together and let's, let's just read scripture a little bit. No, this was a group of guys that came together understanding that, hey, we want to deeply understand what this word means. 
We saw last week that, or two weeks ago, that there was a time where Ezra, he just reads the first five books for like six hours continually. He's reading God's word. And there are other people kind of walking around with these people saying, hey, do you understand that? Is there anything that I can explain? And that did something in them. It kind of lit this fire of, we want to have a deeper understanding of Scripture. Yes, we heard it read, and it stirred something in us. And we had some of our questions answered, but what that led to is we have more questions. And we all know, like, when it comes to Scripture, there are times where we just go, man, I don't know what to do with that. And so thankfully, God had prepared Ezra, and he was the one they said, we know we can go to him, and he's going to explain it to us. And so I feel like they had kind of a list of questions to go, hey, we heard you say this, and people kind of talked about it a little bit, but we want to know, what does God mean by this? Like, what is his word really saying? Because we want to be obedient to it. See, whenever we read scripture and we kind of open up God's word, we find that it comes alive. Literally from page one. If we are intently in God's word, it begins to come alive. And sometimes, yeah, it brings up questions. But as we study it more, it leads to more answers. Literally on page one, it says, in the beginning, God. That verse speaks to so many big things. One, that in the beginning, God, there was never a time that God was not there. There's never been a moment where God wasn't in control. In the beginning, like word beginning in Hebrew, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to say it because if I say it in English, it sounds like a bad word. In fact, I was talking with Terry O'Brien about it over the camping trip, and I said it, and he just kind of looked up. I was like, I told you. Um, but that it, it carries this idea of this epic time that God has been here. Literally from page one it begins. We've looked in the past at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And sometimes when you read scripture, you go, I just don't really get that. But in Ecclesiastes 12, it says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through windows are dimmed. Sometimes we read that and they're like, what is he talking about? This is Solomon talking. But when you dig into scripture, you find out that it says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, these are the keepers of your house. And what he's doing is he's describing a man who's advanced in age, who's got a little bit of shake to his hands. He says, and the strong men are bent, your legs aren't as strong. And the grinder cease because they are few. He's talking about your teeth. Uh, and he says, and those who look through windows are dimmed. He's talking about your eyes. And we could go on like I've already preached that sermon, so I won't do it again. But Solomon has this beautiful description of what it looks like to be advanced in age. To be a guy who's lived his life trying to figure out what is, what is the meaning of this thing. And as the end of it goes, he says, man, it's to know God. But the more we dig into Scripture, the deeper it means and the more it comes alive. We get into the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus understood that when he came in the perfect time that God needed to send him, he showed up to a place that the religious system was completely messed up. All these priests and scribes had taught the people, look, just clean up your outside. That's all you need to do. But inside, man, their hearts were hurting. They had pains, they had hang-ups, they had things that they were dealing with. And it's like, I've cleaned up the outside, but inside, I know that there is something more. And you got Jesus showing up, and he begins to preach the true gospel. And he begins to change up the religious outlook of not just being a good moral person, but the need for something more. He brings the gospel. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And sometimes we go, okay, well, in the beginning was the word, so this has always been here. No, what he's talking about there is Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus was there, and he was God. That's why Genesis 1.27 says, let us make man in our own image. 
You keep going and you get into something heavy. Take Romans 9, for example. That's one of the most difficult chapters to understand in all of Scripture. There's lots of ways of going about it. But if you dig into it, what you find is, man, the sovereignty of God is massive. No one really argues that God is sovereign. It's to what extent? I want the extent of God's sovereignty to go as far as it can because that's what makes him God. You get into Revelation and dig in and go, man, there's some crazy stuff coming. But I love in Revelation 22, he says, behold, I am coming again. The assurance that's there. When we dig into Scripture, there's times we go, I, I'm not sure what that just said to me. But we can find answers. We find it through the Holy Spirit. And these people knew that, hey, we don't completely understand everything, and so we're going to dig in. And as leaders, we're going to go to Ezra, and we're just going to let him teach us. And what had happened was all of these leaders of these households understood we have a responsibility. When I leave this time of Ezra teaching me, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to be expected to teach this to other people, to teach it to my family, to teach it to my children. They understood that they had a responsibility. And I want to point out, not saying, I mean, it's the responsibility of everyone to grow in God's word. But right here, because we just read it, and because we talked about it over the weekend, this was the men that were saying, we know we need to step up. And we have to have that same drive that they did. Because whose responsibility is it to raise up your child in the ways of the Lord? Now take mine, for example. Is it Allison's job, our children's minister? They're over there right now. She's doing a good job. But no, that is not her responsibility. It is mine. It's Whitney and I's, but a lot of it falls on me. When they get a little bit older and they go to the youth ministry, is it Josh's responsibility to raise them up in the ways of the Lord? No. He'll play a part. He'll be an example. But it's our responsibility, and that is a responsibility that we have to accept. And so I said it over the weekend. I'll say it again. I'll say it here online. As men in this church, we have to understand, like, if I'm going to be an effective father, if I'm going to be an effective husband, if I'm going to be an effective leader, I have been called to step up. And look, I'm not saying you have to be the greatest theologian in the world, but we have to have a desire to know more about this so that we can be obedient with what it says. And when we do that, we see stronger families. We see a stronger church. We see a better community. And not just because we're not doing bad things, but because we're rising up knowing that God has called us to more. And so they start reading Scripture, and guess what? They find things. When we read through Scripture and we really dig into it, we find answers. Like if you're reading the Bible to find answers, what you find is sometimes you've got to spend a little time on it, but you can get the answer. I love that 500 years ago, Martin Luther who's this great reformer, and if you're in a Protestant church and you're here at one right now, uh, we're here because of that guy. Um, he was teaching a summer school class on the book of Romans. I love that 500 years ago, they still had summer school. <laughs> like, it was still a thing. It was already existing. It makes me feel better because I'd probably had to be in the class. He gets through Romans chapters 1 through 8 without any problems. He's teaching these young theologians, and then he gets to Romans 9, and he said, man, I could not figure out how to teach this. Because I told you earlier, it's a, it's a heavy chapter. And Martin Luther said that I laid hold of Paul and wrestled with him until he submitted the answers. You want to know how to read scripture? Read it like that. Wrestle. Spend time. Some things I've read and said, you know what? The first time I read it, I had an understanding of it. There are other things that I had to wrestle with for three years 
some theological areas where I remember three years of going, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm going to keep reading. I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to keep talking with people. And finally, one day I went, oh, I can close my hand on it now. But sometimes you've got to wrestle through Scripture. And that's what these guys are doing. And as they do it, some of them are hearing this for the very first time. Remember, they've been exiles. They've been far away from Jerusalem. They've been in a foreign country, in a pagan area. And some of them, for the first time, are going, I've never heard that before. But I know it's from God's word, so I want to be obedient because Scripture always wins. As I'm reading through Scripture and I find something to go, man, my life doesn't line up with that. Is it my life that wins? No, it's Scripture that wins. When I read through Scripture and I go, hey, man, from a cultural standpoint, we're not really going that direction. We're going this direction. Well, Scripture wins. For some of these men, for the first time, hearing some of this going, okay, I I need to get answers on that, but I want to be obedient to that. What did they discover? They discovered Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, Scripture says that God commanded through Moses that there were going to be several feasts that they were going to practice in the Old Testament. And this one in particular was known as the Feast of Booths. Depending on translation, it may say Feast of Booths, it may say Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's this festival called Sakat. And it was a time where they would come together, and it served as a reminder for what God had done. And they heard about it, and some of them said, I've never practiced that before. But throughout the Old Testament, there were a number of different feasts that, as a Jewish culture, they would come together and they would practice One of them that's tied in very close with this one was known as the Feast of Weeks. It was a time of celebration. It was a time where the harvest had come in. And you have to remember, this is a very agricultural society. And so when all that food comes in, man, they get excited. You didn't go to Walmart because the the harvest failed. And so the Feast of Weeks was this time of celebration and offering and all these good things. The Feast of Booths was a reminder of the wilderness. See, whenever the Israelites left Egypt, they'd been enslaved for A long time, God raised up Moses just like he raised up Nehemiah. Some of you know the story. Moses goes and the plagues come to Egypt and eventually Pharaoh goes, okay, just get them out of here. And they make their way through the wilderness. And during that time, it was a tough time, but God still provided for them. Like some of you right now, you may be walking through a valley. You may be watching online. You may be walking through a valley. Don't forget that God is still there in valleys. Like, I've been here for a little bit, and I forget a lot of people are new. And so over the weekend, we were sitting around talking and just kind of sharing some stories. And before I got to South Point, it was about an 18-month journey of looking for what was next for me in ministry. 18 months of travel. Whitney and I, we went from the top of the country to the bottom and from the east coast to the west coast. And I started thinking back during those times of just all the things that God did. Because there were times it's like, God, I want want to be back in ministry. I want a job. (laughs) Like, I want to be working and be able to provide for my family. And some of the places that we went, I look back, I'm like, man, that would have been a crazy situation. God was really watching out for us because I just, thinking back through some of that process, I don't think that would have worked out very well. And after 18 months of praying and God working in our lives and doing things, and yeah, it was a valley, but God never left. And then getting a phone call and getting invited to Abilene, Texas, and praising God that we were able to stay in Texas, (laughs) because I'm kind of fond of it. Like, he wasn't ever gone. 
Like in the wilderness, God is still there providing. God is still there leading. God is still there moving you towards what is next. And the Feast of Booths reminds people of that. So they would go out, and they would gather up branches and palm leaves and big things like that. And this sounds so crazy to a Western culture, but they would basically make these huts. And for seven days, they would live inside that hut. And it was a reminder that God had provided them shelter during the wilderness. God had led them through that. It served as a reminder that God had still provided salvation in a way out, even in a difficult situation. And so the Feast of Booths was going to be celebrated. And so they read about it, they get an understanding of it, and then they begin to spread the word. Hey, take, take this message out to the cities, take this message out to Jerusalem. We're going to do this. We're going to observe this feast. And then we see what happens with the people in verse 16. It says, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel, uh, to that day of the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I love that these people didn't just read God's word. They didn't just read God's word and then study it to understand it. They acted in obedience. All of them. Everyone who heard this said, yes, we want to be a part of that. And they got excited to be obedient. Like they were, there was this absolute excitement to be obedient to what God had called them to. Honestly, in a time where obedience in this area might have been tough. See, the Feast of Weeks had been celebrated lots of times. Man, that harvest comes in. It's a time to get everybody together, tell stories, and eat good food. Like, we like that. Nobody really gets, you know, down about going to a birthday party, right? Unless it's at Chuck E. Cheese. Those get weird. But for the most part, if it's going to be a celebration, you don't really have to sell that very hard. But the Feast of Booths, that one was different. That one required sacrifice. Because, see, you weren't going to live in your house. You were going to live in this hut for seven days. And you have to remember, these people had just gotten back to a semblance of normal. For over a century, almost a century and a half, they'd been exiles. For almost a century and a half, the walls of Jerusalem had not been there. That safety had not been there. Their memories and their heritage had been wrecked. Then Nehemiah comes back, he builds this massive wall, he brings the people back into Jerusalem, they've got houses for everybody, it's a good moment. Suddenly, you're looking, it's like there's some stability. I went to work today and I came home and there's these walls around me, I've got a roof over my head, and now you want me to go back out and live in a hut. See, I think a lot of people would have struggled with that. If you go from a very difficult situation to finally going, okay, I get a little bit of normal, and now that's going to be upset again? No, I don't want to be a part of that. But these people heard it and went, we're all about that. So we're going to take these branches, and we're going to take these, these uh, palm leaves, and we're going to build these huts, and we're going to put them on our roofs. In this culture, they had a lot of flat roofs. It wasn't domed or sh- uh, slanted like ours are. It was a place where you kind of went just to relax a little bit, catch a cool breeze when it's hot. And they built these booths on top of their roofs. If they didn't have a roof, they built them in these city squares. 
And it would look crazy to us, but all over the city of Jerusalem, all these little huts pop up. And look, you didn't make it like really super special. Like you didn't have little trinkets hung up and things like that. It was just a little hut. But man, the people were excited. They were excited to be obedient. But I think it would have been tough for them because they're essentially camping. Some of y'all know camping's not for everyone. I love the trip that we had last weekend. I do it all the time. I love sleeping in a tent. My one thing, I do have to have an air mattress. That's my perk. My, my booth would have a little air mattress in it. But I love it. Some people are like, you like that? <laughs> camping for some people is Holiday Inn. Like that's the example. Or we're going camping. I'm just not sleeping in my own bed. But sometimes that's tough. But these people said, we don't, we're not worried about comfort we're not worried about having to leave our, leave our house again. They wanted to be obedient. Because they understood obedience leads to discipleship. And it leads to sanctification. Sanctification is us becoming more like Christ. If we are believers each and every day, hopefully and prayerfully, we are becoming more like him. We're letting go of the old us. And we're being made more into the image of Christ. And this is what obedience does. And they understood that. They understood if we are obedient, God's going to continue to watch over us. God's going to continue to bless us. And they fell in love with obedience. At South Point, we say we're a committed church. One of those commitments, we say we want to be committed to obedience. If you go out in the foyer in the front, there's some word pictures to that. And the word picture for obedience is a Venn diagram. If you're familiar, you take circles and place them over each other. In some places in the Venn diagram, the one circle is only touching itself. In some places, it overlaps with another one. And no matter how many circles you add to that, the sweet spot's in the middle. It's where they all interact and they all find themselves doing the same thing. This is what obedience looks like. See, we have one circle that says, hey, if I'm a follower of Christ, I am called to love. I'm called to love my neighbor like I love myself. And then we have another circle that says, hey, I am called to forgive. I have been forgiven of much, and I am called to forgive in that same way. And we have another circle that says, I am called to love and to serve and to put that to action. We have another circle that says, man, I'm called to rise up and support. You, we have all these different circles. And sometimes we'll take some of those circles and go, you know what? I love to fellowship with people, and I love to love. But have you met my neighbor? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to love my neighbor. And we try and put it over here, but that's not what we're called to. We're called to take all of the circles that we find within Scripture, and we line all of those circles up, and we want to be in the middle. Because when we're obedient, God does bless. When we're obedient, we get to watch the things that he's doing. When we're obedient, it is a sweet, sweet spot to be in. That's why it says, and they rejoiced. There was great rejoicing. It didn't stop there for them either. Throughout all of that, they continued just to say, give us, give us more of the word. And Ezra continues to read. Like, this is a beautiful moment. It had not been celebrated for a long, long time. And finally, the people fall in love with God's word and say, we want to be a people who are obedient. And as I look at us today, man, I... I pray that the same can be said for us. That we look at all of the circles that God has called us to. And we put them together. And the one that we've left over here and said, man, 
I just struggle with that and I don't want to deal with it. I pray we fall in love with God's word enough to say it's time. It may be difficult, it may be hard, but I'm going to take that circle and I'm going to put it over here so that all of those are matching up in the middle. What's crazy in all of this story, Nehemiah is never even mentioned. See, Nehemiah had raised other people up enough to go, we need to be doing something. This was a body of people coming together, understanding there's something bigger going on here. As a church, this is us coming together. Again, it's not Allison's responsibility. It's not Josh's responsibility. This is us coming together and going, how can I be obedient and walk in it closer every single day? Let's pray. God, we love you. God, the first act, we know the first act of obedience for any believer is acknowledging that we're not perfect, that we are sinful, and that sin separates us from you. But in your love, you sent your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life. And if there's someone that's in here today or watching online, God, and every time we talk about Jesus, something just stirs inside of them, I pray they would know that that's the Holy Spirit calling to them. And if you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, but today you're going, I need that, I'd say, God, as best as I know how, I want to come to you. I want to turn away from my old life. I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life and be a follower of him. That act of obedience changes everything. And then, God, we begin this beautiful journey. God, I pray that we will have a longing for your word. That we will understand we have the responsibility because others are relying on us. God, grow us in that this week. God, let us get excited like these people did about obedience. Let us push away from the old God and just fall deeper in love with you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.